I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 together this morning. We're moving into a section of Matthew's Gospel that describes the passion events, the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, I want to speak to you for a few moments about the good news of the empty cup. We're going to talk about the cup that Jesus took when He went on the road to the cross. And next Sunday, we're going to talk about the crown that he wore. And then Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the cross that he bore. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the empty tomb. And so I hope that you are looking forward to Easter weekend. It's going to be a wonderful time together as a church family. And I want to ask you to begin praying right now that God would put a name of someone on your heart that you can invite and bring with you to church on Easter weekend. Uh, Ask the Lord to bring that name to mind and then begin to pray for that person over the next few weeks and invite them to come with you and uh, worship with us on Easter. We're going to have a a great weekend together. We'll have a Saturday night uh, Easter service. We'll have four Sunday morning Easter services, including a a, a sunrise service out at the lake. And so hope that you'll be part of all of that and and, uh, bring a guest with you. Well, if you think about words that you might use to describe Jesus as he goes on the road to the cross to embrace the cross and in the resurrection. There are many words that might come to your mind. Here are a few that come to my mind. I think of words like suffering servant, conquering king, obedient son, loving savior. Not many of us would use words like hesitant, apprehensive, or reluctant. And yet that seems to be the picture that we get of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. A couple of years ago, my, um, my kids convinced me to put up for the very first time uh, real Christmas lights on our house which I've learned is a rite of passage for every father to put real Christmas lights on the house. Now, mind you, we've always had Christmas lights on our house, just not real Christmas lights on our house. I went to Home Depot years ago, got a great investment. It's a Christmas light projector. Has anybody ever seen those? It's just, it, for, it casts Christmas lights onto the house and it takes about five seconds to set up. You plug it in, stick it in your yard, boom, Merry Christmas. The Christmas lights are on the house. My kids thought I was a Scrooge, and so they convinced me a couple of years ago, Daddy, we want real Christmas lights on the house. So I decided I'm going to do this rite of passage. I'm going to go to Home Depot, find the Christmas lights, and I'm going to be a man, and I'm going to put Christmas lights on the house. I should tell you, I have a slight aversion to heights, and yet I decided to do the thing anyway. And so climbed up our roof, which was quite steep. And so it actually, because I have a slight aversion to heights, it didn't really look like me climbing the roof as much as laying flat on the roof and inching my way up, green beret style with the Christmas lights in my teeth. I got to the very top of the roof and have my stapler there. I'm going to staple those things, you know, up there. Well, I made a mistake. I decided I'm going to, you know, this is not terrible. I'm surviving to this point. I'm just going to look over the edge of the roof and see That was a bad idea. I just put my hands there and kind of peeked over. And in that instant, just this image in my mind popped up of me plummeting to my death. And then I could see the 
you know, the Amarillo Globe News headline the next day, you know, local pastor dies trying to spread Christmas cheer. And I just, I looked over and I just thought, I'm about to die. And just kind of physically shuddered and pulled back. Now, it wasn't because I didn't have the willpower to actually do it, right? I was going to do it no matter what, even because I wasn't going to embarrass myself in front of my kids. It was just a brief moment that the thought of what might await me caused me to shrink back. And that is the image that we get of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26 in verses 36 through 39. We find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Up to this point in Matthew chapter 26, there's several things that have happened. Jesus has been anointed by Mary. We talked about that last Sunday. He's eaten the last supper with his disciples, his Passover meal. At that supper, he's predicted that Judas would betray him. He's told Peter that Peter's going to deny him. And he knows where he is headed on the road to the cross. And now he goes to pray. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what awaits him. And he wants to spend some time in prayer with the Father. So I want you to notice how the text describes him in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Notice the language used there to describe describe Jesus. As Christians, we believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here you have a portrait of Jesus' humanity. He is troubled. He's sorrowful. He's experiencing grief like we experience. In verse 38, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Sorrowful, troubled, grieved. Verse 38 literally reads, my soul is swallowed up to the point of death. Jesus is saying, I am so burdened, I am so troubled, I am so sorrowful, it feels like I'm drowning, even to the point of death. And in this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is suffering such deep emotional anguish that Luke's gospel tells us that he begins to sweat as he prays. I wonder how many of us have been so earnest in prayer that we have actually begun to sweat while we pray. Jesus is sweating, but he's, Luke tells us he's actually sweating drops of blood. You might think that that's something you've never heard of, but actually medical doctors know that this is a medical condition called hematidrosis. And it's where you experience such intense physical or emotional stress or duress that your body just begins to to sweat blood. This is what is happening with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what caused Jesus' distress? What caused him to sweat drops of blood, to describe himself in this way? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 39 tells us why. He says, uh, Matthew says, going a little further, Jesus 
fell face down and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Here is a picture of a faithful and obedient but hesitant Savior. Jesus in prayer in this moment of great emotional stress and duress, crying out to his Father, looks at something that he calls the cup. And he says, Father, if there is any other way for me to accomplish what I came to accomplish, if there is any other route to redemption, then let this cup pass from me. And it looks in this text like Jesus peering over into the cup, sees what is in it, and shrinks back. The question we've got to ask is why? What what was it about this cup that was so repulsive that Jesus asked to avoid it? Well, to find the answer, you're going to need your Old Testament, okay? So I want you to stick your finger in Matthew chapter 26 and turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Psalms, and particularly the 75th Psalm. And what I want to try to do in the next few minutes is just to shed some light from the Old Testament onto what this cup actually represented, and it's going to help us understand what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So look at Psalm 75. The idea of the cup is not new in the New Testament, okay? This is a theme that you actually see multiple times in the Old Testament. It pops up again and again. And uh, there are many places we could look uh, this morning. I want to just point you to two of them, okay? One, I'm just going to quote Jeremiah 25, 15. And then we're going to look at Psalm 75 in a little bit more detail to try to understand what is the cup that Jesus wants to pass from him. Jeremiah 25, 15, it's on your screens here. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. All right, what is that? Let's throw that verse right back up there. As you look at the verse, what is the cup in Jeremiah 25, 15? What is in the cup? You see it? Just shout it out to me once you spot it. Wrath. What is wrath? Here's what it is. It is God's judgment against sin. That's what wrath is. Jeremiah says there is a cup full of the judgment of God and the nations are going to drink from the cup. In other words, one day, there is coming a day when God is going to pour out this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath for sin on the nations. The prophets again and again refer to this cup that is full of the furious wrath of God over sin. Psalm 75 is one of those other places where we find the cup reference. So I want you to turn there, Psalm 75. And Psalm 75 is uh, is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, okay? Many Psalms contrast the righteous and the wicked. In fact, the very first Psalm does this. Psalm 1 is a contrast between the two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And here's a similar contrast. And this Psalm describes what the righteous do, uh, what the wicked do, and then what will be done to the wicked. 
So let's look together. First of all, look at what the righteous do. Psalm 75 and verse 1, it says, We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you for your name is near. People tell all about your wondrous works. Look down at verse 9, almost like a bookend of this psalm. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. So what do the righteous do? The righteous magnify the Lord. The righteous focus their attention on him. The righteous exalt God. The righteous praise the Lord. That's what the righteous do. But now notice what the wicked do. Down in verses 4 and 5. Look at how the psalmist describes the wicked. It says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. So how are the wicked described here in these verses? Well, they're described in two ways. First of all, they're described as boastful. Uh, He says, don't boast. Don't be arrogant, right? So notice the contrast here with the the righteous. The righteous magnify the Lord. The wicked magnify themselves. The righteous exalt the Lord, praise the Lord. The wicked boast about themselves. They're arrogant. The righteous, their attention is all on God. The wicked, their attention is all on themselves. So they're boastful. But then he says, they also raise the horn against heaven. What does that mean? Well, here's here's what it means. This is a reference probably to a ram's horn. And in the ancient world, if you were going to to go to battle against someone, you would... uh, it wasn't like today where you try to battle stealthily, right? Like in the ancient world, you announce that you're coming. You two sides agree. They meet on a battlefield. They all line up. And then they lift up a ram's horn. And if you were going to attack your enemy, you sound a, a, the, the blast of a trumpet, the, the blast of a ram's horn, announcing that you're about to attack. And then you would do battle against your enemy. Okay, so the psalmist is using that imagery to say, this is what the wicked do. The wicked raise their horn but they're raising their horn against heaven. In other words, the wicked array themselves in battle against God. This is just like Psalm 2 and and, and verse 2, which talks about the kings of the earth uh, conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Here the picture of the wicked is of people who boast in themselves and battle against the Lord. They set their faces like flint against God. And so what's going to be done to the wicked? Well, look down in verses 6 through 8. The psalmist talks about what's going to happen to the wicked since they have set themselves against the Lord in battle. Verse 6, exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert. For God is the judge. Now, that ought to be a startling statement to anyone who sets themselves against the Lord. The Lord is the judge. And this is what his judgment will look like. He will bring down one and exalt the other. Okay, so what is God's judgment going to look like? It's going to look like bringing down the wicked and exalting the righteous. Now look at verse 8. For there is a, what does it say there? There's a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices. It's just like the language from Jeremiah 25, isn't it? A cup full of the wine of God's wrath and God is going to pour from it and all the wicked of the earth will drink it, draining it 
to the dregs. So what's going to happen to the wicked? Well, those who are boastful and battle against the Lord, the Lord is going to bring them down and he's going to pour out a cup of judgment that they will drink all the way down to the dregs. In no uncertain terms here, the psalmist says that God is too just to allow human wickedness to go without his justice. He will pour out his wrath against sin. And that should be startling news to all of us because the Bible says every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is a rebel. And every single one of us deserves what? Death, judgment, the cup of wrath. Look at the next, uh, the next couple of verses. Look down at verse 10 of Psalm 75. God says, I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, right? So the wicked who raise their horn in battle against the Lord, what is the Lord going to do? Cut off the horns of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Again, this idea that he's going to bring one down and exalt the other. He's going to cut off the horns of the wicked, but exalt the horns of the righteous. The wicked... And they're being brought down and they're being cut off. The text tells us there is a cup of the furious wrath of God against sin that they will drink. Our junior high students this last week spent their uh, spring break doing a disaster uh, recovery down in the Beaumont area. Uh, several homes experienced flooding. And so our students went to go just bring some r relief and recovery to try to help rebuild some of those homes. Um, I'm very familiar with the devastating power of floodwaters having grown up in Houston. It seems like every year there's a major hurricane and with the hurricane comes, uh, comes floodwater. And it's, it's an amazing thing if you've never experienced a massive flood like that. There, there, is, a, there is a devastation that comes with it. There, there is a, a crushing weight to the water. And the, the, the weight of the water really just crushes anything in its, in its path. The, the picture that we're getting in Psalm 75 is a picture of God's judgment that is going to flood over the wicked, crushing everything under its weight. This teaches us that sinful humans deserve to drain the cup of God's judgment all the way to the bottom. That is what you and I deserve for our sin because we've rebelled against God. What we deserve is to take that cup that the Bible says God is one day going to pour out on the wicked. That cup is yours to take. That cup is mine to take. And that is the most startling, terrifying thing that you can imagine, to take the cup of the wrath of God. With all of that background, it, it helps us understand what's happening in Matthew 26. What would cause Jesus in the garden to shrink back, to hesitate at the thought of the cup? Well, it wasn't because Jesus feared what men would do to him, right? It wasn't that Jesus just thought about looking ahead to the cross. It wasn't just that Jesus was thinking about the pain of, of the nails uh, he, it wasn't just that he was thinking about the physical anguish that would come with being crucified, although that would have been the most painful physical experience you could have experienced in that day. There was something weightier 
something heavier that was going to happen on the cross. And here is what it was. When Jesus went to the cross, he was not just going because the Jewish people put him there. He was not just going because the Roman authorities put him there. He was going there to bear the wrath of God for sin. Isaiah the prophet tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What's actually happening on the cross is not some kind of human plan. It's a divine plan to deal with the problem of sin. Here's what's happening on the cross of Jesus. God the Father, who is perfectly holy and righteous, who looks at the sinful rebellion of mankind, takes this cup of righteous wrath and pours it out. But what's happening on the cross is that he's not pouring it out on you and me. He is giving that cup to his very own son who will drink it dry. On the cross, what's happening is that God the Father is turning his wrath for sin, which you and I deserve because of our rebellion, he's turning that wrath in upon himself in the death of his son Jesus so that Jesus is taking the judgment of God for you and for me in our place. And the reason that Jesus says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass, is because he knew that that's what he faced on the cross. He was, he was facing nothing short of bearing the furious wrath of God against all injustice, all sin, and all evil in our place. And he didn't do that, folks, because he deserved it. Right? Psalm 75 tells us who the cup is for. Who is the cup for in Psalm 75? The wicked, right? The wicked are those who deserve to drink the cup. Jesus wasn't wicked. We are. The cup was ours to take. And what was happening on the cross is that Jesus was taking the cup that you and I deserved to drink. And he was drinking it for us in our place. So the picture that we have of Matthew 26 of Jesus is someone who knows what he's about to do. He understands the weightiness of what it will mean to bear the wrath of God for sin in our place, even though he didn't deserve it. But he embraced it anyway. You see the, the most important part of verse 39, Matthew chapter 26. He says, Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way to accomplish redemption, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will but your will be done. You see, the image that we have of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus is looking ahead at this cup of judgment. He, for a moment, just hesitates at the thought of what this would mean, asks if there's any other way, let it happen. But then Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, a hard obedience, takes that cup for us, and on the cross he drinks the cup of God's wrath for us until there is not a drop of God's judgment left. And if you want some really good news this morning, do anybody want some good news this morning? I'm talking some really good news. Here's some really good news for you. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
Because Jesus took the cup that was yours and that was mine on the cross, that means that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter the mistakes or the sin in your past, no matter the shame that you might be wearing or the guilt that you might be bearing, because Jesus took the cup of God's judgment, there is not a drop of God's judgment left for you. Which means that when, when you're in Christ, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior and you put your head on the pillow at night, you can do so without fear. If the Lord takes you in the middle of the night, there needs to be no fear about standing before God the judge because in Christ you are fully acquitted and God's judgment has been totally drained by Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which is my favorite verse in the Bible, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, God has no more wrath left for you because Jesus drank the cup all the way to the dregs. Amen? If y'all were Pentecostals, you'd be running up and down these aisles right about now. So let me just keep working on you, all right? Here's something mind-blowing. Here's something mind-blowing. The last verse of Psalm 75 says that God will cut off the horns of who? The wicked. Remember that? He's going to cut off the horns of the wicked. He'll lift up the horns of the righteous. Listen. That's inverted at the cross. Here's what's happening at the cross of Jesus. At the cross, the righteous one, Jesus, is cut off so that the wicked in Christ can be lifted up. That's the mind-blowing scandal of the cross. Jesus gets my sin. I get his righteousness. There is a great reversal. God the Father treats God the Son as you and I deserve to be treated so that you and I can be treated by God the Father as God the Son deserves to be treated. That is at the heart of the Christian gospel. It's what theologians call the great exchange, that the one who deserved to be lifted up was cut off so that those who deserve to be cut off could be lifted up. God treated Jesus, who was innocent, as guilty so that he could treat us who are guilty as if we are innocent. Amen? Is that good news? My, my daughter Jenna, uh, when she was two years old, she, uh, she broke her leg. She was playing at the playground, fell off of a piece of playground equipment, and she broke actually her femur bone, which is one of the most difficult bones that you can break. And because of where it broke, it was just right under her hip, the cast that the doctors had to put on her came from the ankle all the way up her leg, all the way up to her rib cage, went around her body, and then back around her bottom. And because of the way that that cast was built around Jenna's leg, she was not allowed to move for six weeks. And so trying to keep our very rambunctious, beautiful, blonde-headed uh, two-year-old still on the couch with a cast with like Cheerios being dropped down in there and all kinds of other stuff. That was a, that was a baptism by fire, I promise you, in terms, in terms of the world of parenting. And oh, it was just a miserable sight uh, to see her there. I mean, you just, your heart broke uh, every time you'd look at her. And, and then it kind of got worse. After a few weeks, she decided she was tired of having to sit on the couch all day, every day. And so she learned how to sort of walk with the cast. And that was really miserable. She would just like 
hold on to couches and chairs and she would drag that cast behind her like some limp dog, you know, and you just, your heart just broke every time you saw it. I'm just telling you, in those first few weeks as Jenna was laying out on that couch, everything in my daddy heart wanted to switch places with her. If I could have, I had it in my power to, to be in her place so that she wouldn't have to be there, everything in me would have made that exchange. I couldn't do that, of course. But do you realize that that is what is happening at the cross of Jesus? At the cross, the God of the universe is taking your place. At the cross, the God of the universe loves you so much that even though each and every one of us deserves to drink the cup of God's judgment, he loves us so much he drank it for us. Jesus switches places with us on the cross so that he would receive the judgment of God for us in our place. Folks, he drank the cup so that you wouldn't have to. Bless his name. Let me just point out one last thing about Matthew 26 that I don't want you to miss because Jesus didn't do this because we deserved it. He didn't do this because there was some kind of merit in us. He did this for us even though we didn't deserve it at all. And I don't want you to miss that in Matthew chapter 26 because Matthew 26 is a chapter full of human failure. And if you just zoom out from this paragraph we've been looking at, just zoom out and situate this in the context of the whole chapter, this is a dark cloud of failure. In instance after instance, in Matthew 26, you have examples of people failing. Let me just give a quick survey, okay? I'm not going to read every verse. Let me just give you a quick survey. In the first five verses, you have the Jewish leaders who are conspiring to arrest and kill Jesus, the text tells us, in a treacherous way. In verses 14 through 16, Judas, one of the 12, a member of Jesus' inner circle, sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We looked at that last Sunday. The word, if you look in verses 20 through 25, Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples. The word that's repeated the most in those verses is the word betray. Betray, betrayal, betrayer, describing Judas. And then in verses 47 through 50, Jesus tells Judas, right, you're going to betray me. In verses 47 through 50, that's exactly what Judas does. He betrays the best friend he ever had. He betrays him with a kiss, right? You read that in verse 48. His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. In verses 31 through 35, Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to deny him. Of course, Peter says, no, I'm not. But then in verses 69 through 75, that's exactly what happens. Exactly what Jesus said would happen, happens. Verses 69 through 75, three times in those verses, you see the word repeated, uh, deny, deny. Peter denies him. And then in the midst of all of that, <clears throat> Jesus has 12 disciples 
But what's happening with them during all of these things? Well, you would expect that the 12 disciples, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas is going to bring a mob to arrest Jesus, they're going to put him on trial. You would expect that these 12 Galilean fishermen would stand up for their friend, that they would surround him, that they'd protect him, that they'd defend him, even maybe give their life for him. But that's not what happens at all. What are the disciples doing in Matthew 26? Well, first of all, you see them neglecting Jesus. When Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, goes to spend time with his father, What does he tell the disciples to do? Stay awake. And he goes and prays and he comes back and what have they done? They've fallen asleep. And so Jesus says, wake up, stay awake, right? Jesus is all about second chances, stay awake. So he goes to pray again and he comes back and what are they doing? Sleeping, just like us, right? Just, this is what humans do. They fail, they're neglecting him. And then in this moment where the mob comes to arrest him, again, you expect for them to stand up for him, but what do they do? They desert him. Look down at verse 56. All of this happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, say it with me, deserted him and ran away. Then the religious leaders in verses 57 through 68 falsely accused Jesus in a sham of a trial. In verse 59, you can see the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So if you just survey Matthew chapter 26 and you just pay attention to the words that are used, like pay attention to the verbs, conspire, arrest, kill, betray, deny, desert, accuse. Just go through Matthew 26 and highlight some of the repetitions of those words. And then you zoom out and you look at the whole chapter. It is a chapter full of human failure. But against this dark backdrop, against this cloud of human failure, there is a bright light of faithfulness. In the midst of all this failure in verses 36 through 39, one example One example of a faithful son submitting himself to his father's will, looking at what obedience would cost and taking the cup of judgment anyway for us in our place. What a contrast. What a glorious contrast. And folks, this, if you want to just write a big idea over Matthew chapter 26, this would be it. Matthew 26 is about this, a son who is faithful in the midst of human failure. But listen to me, he is faithful so that failures can be forgiven. That's what Matthew 26 is all about. You see, Jesus in the midst of this dark cloud of human failure shines as a bright light of faithfulness. But the reason that he is faithful, the reason that he is faithful is so that failures can be redeemed and restored. Failures like Peter, Failures like Judas, failures like the religious leaders, failures like the 12 disciples, failures like you and me. Jesus is faithful so that failures can be forgiven. And that is the gospel that we proclaim. The gospel means good news. That is the good news that we are saved, not because we never fail, but because in our failure, a son was faithful enough to take our cup and drink it for us. That's the heart of the Christian gospel, that we are saved from the wrath of God, not on the basis of our merit, 
but on the merit of Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen? So let me just close by talking about a few implications of this for us. What does this mean for us, the fact that the cup is empty? Well, first of all, it means we can have hope. We can have hope. The empty cup gives us hope. Because Jesus drank damnation dry, there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ, which means you can have hope. By the way, not only is there an empty cup, there's also an empty grave. Amen. And by the way, I, I, don't, I wish I had enough time to preach every verse of this chapter, but I don't. Let me just read one to you. Verse 32, don't skip over verse 32. Verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm your shepherd. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, the, the shepherd will be struck. Sheep will scatter. But verse 32, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. But that's not the end of the story. I am going to be risen. I'm going to come back to life. And folks, because of an empty cup and an empty grave, we have hope. We have life because Jesus was willing to drink death. Because Jesus received the, the wrath of God's justice we can receive the wealth of God's grace. We have hope. Here's the second implication. We can rest. We can rest. Our acceptance by God isn't on the basis of our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Listen to me very carefully. The reason that we obey God is not to please God. Because of the work of Jesus for you, God is as pleased with you as he can possibly be. And so why do we obey God? It's not because we're trying to earn his pleasure. It's because we've already received his pleasure in Christ. Does that make sense? It's a matter of the cart and the horse. We don't obey in order to get God's favor. It's, it's because we already have God's favor through the work of Christ for us that we obey. The reality is we fail all the time. Matthew 26 is full of human failure, but Jesus is faithful. And because Jesus is faithful, we can rest in his work. Our acceptance by God isn't on the basis of our performance, but his performance. That means that the gospel isn't about how much you do for God. It's about how much God has done for you in Christ. You don't have to earn his favor. You can rest in that. Amen? Here's a third implication. We can be thankful. We ought to be the most grateful, thankful people on the planet because of the fact that the cup is empty. Because Jesus drank down to the dregs the wrath of God for us. We ought to be thankful for that. What is worship if not grateful awe at what God has done for us? Right? The proof of God's love for you lies in an empty cup. So we get together regularly to celebrate what God has done. That is what worship is all about. Listen, that's one of the reasons I love it when, when worship is a little rowdy. Can I get a witness? Amen. That's one of the reasons I love the 11 o'clock service. Y'all let loose, and I like that. It's not like you can only say amen if it's in the, the bulletin, you know, and you're like, oh. Listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, we can celebrate it, amen? amen. 
And so you ought to be willing to hoop and holler and cheer and jump and raise your hands. And, and uh, you got to be careful running up and down these aisles a little bit. But, but you ought to be able to celebrate in grateful thanksgiving because of what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. All right, here's the fourth and final one. What's the fourth implication? It's, it's this. Because the cup is empty, we have a message to proclaim. We, we have a message to proclaim. The empty cup should cause us to speak. We, ha- we have a gospel to herald. We have good news to declare. We have a message to proclaim this good news of an empty cup. I saw some amazing photos this week from the James Webb Space Telescope. Some of you have seen some of the photos that are being captured right now by the James Webb Telescope. That's just one of them, but there's so many of them. It's just absolutely amazing to see the beauty of what God has made. But here's the thing. Without a telescope, if you, if you and I just went out tonight and looked at the, the, the stars in the sky, a supernova would look to us like a dot. And it'd be very easy to look into the sky and see a supernova and shrug. It's just a speck. It seems insignificant. It's just a dot. It doesn't seem that big of a deal. Until you look through a telescope. When you look through a telescope, you behold the beauty of what was always there, but that you couldn't see until now. As believers in Christ, we are beholders of the beauty. We look at something that maybe before we knew Christ, you might have thought about the cross and you might have just shrugged and said, it's a dot, it's a speck, it's not that big of a deal. And you just shrugged and moved on. But there came a moment in your life where you beheld the beauty of what God had done for you in Christ. And it changed everything about you. And what we're called now to do We've beheld the beauty of what God has done for us. Our job now is to run around to other people with a telescope and to say, look, behold the beauty of what God has done. Folks, that's what evangelism is. It is just going to people who look at the cross and just see a speck and it's showing them the beauty of the work of God for us in Christ. And we're just saying, look and see what we see. Behold the beauty Isn't that what Psalm 75 tells us that the righteous do? The righteous praise the Lord. That's our calling to to go around to a watching world that thinks that the cross is insignificant. And instead of boasting about ourselves and being arrogant and raising our horn in battle against the Lord, we say, look at what the Lord has done for us. Behold the beauty of the work of God's Son. Philip Bliss put it so well when he wrote in that song that we all love, It Is Well With My Soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in, say it with me, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise God. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Would you bow with me? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, or maybe you're watching online, and as you have thought about Jesus, all you have 
seen up to this point in your life is just a dot, a speck, something insignificant. I want to invite you today to behold the beauty, to see what God has done for you, to see and understand the significance and the weightiness, the gravity of the cross. See the good news of it. That if you come to Jesus, God has no judgment for you if you're in Christ. The Bible extends the invitation to know Christ to every person. And so if you're here today and you have been, maybe you've been living a wicked life, a sinful life, a rebellious life, you can know God in this way. I want to invite you to do that even now in this moment. The Bible tells you that you can experience forgiveness and redemption by turning from your sin, putting your trust in Jesus. Romans chapter 10 tells us all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Be saved from what? Be saved from the wrath of God. So you could just call out to God in this moment. You could pray with me just something like this. God, I know that I am a sinner. And I know I deserve the cup of judgment. But I believe that Jesus took it for me on the cross and in the resurrection. And so in this moment, I'm turning from my sin. And I'm trusting fully that what Jesus did is enough for me. God, forgive me for all of my sin. I want to belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.